All right, good afternoon. Thank you for uh, coming out and uh, long Labor Day weekend, and we are looking forward to more on persevering um, of the saints, the um, amazing ability that the Lord gives us to, to persevere, and uh, our part in that as well, but then also the false assurance that uh, many feel um, oftentimes when they have maybe prayed a prayer when they were younger and uh, still uh, maybe are holding on to that rather than truly trusting Christ. So, um, Papa, would you pray for us? And then um, we, will, we will get going kind of using um, the outline that we started with last week. Yes, thank you, Jerry. Let's pray. Uh, I want to begin with reading... Um, uh, Item 17.1 from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Those are great words, Lord. Uh, and yet they are affirmed, confirmed, um, appointed for us in the scriptures, throughout scriptures, and throughout scripture. And, and we've talked about these, some of these assurances in last week's session. And this afternoon was simply uh, confirmed that uh, through our discussion. We need your spirit, Father, uh, to fill us with your grace, to give us the exact words, to teach us. Uh, we're always learners. And uh, Lord, I'm, I'm just thankful for these men that are willing to, uh, to separate for this afternoon and, and to indulge in this quest. And it's a wonderful, exciting, uh, beautiful picture of who you are and who you want us to be, that we would never, ever leave your side, <clears throat> that we would abide in you until that day when you call us home and be glorified in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm, amen. Last week, we looked at uh, we must persevere in the faith if we're going to finally be saved. And another point that we would like to talk about is the gospel obedience produced by saving faith is always necessary for final salvation. Okay, now this can get um, a little bit sticky because it can sound like you have to do good works in order to be saved. And what we're saying is, no, that's not the case. But true salvation will always produce good works. Scott, you were telling me a minute ago that before you were a believer, you had a false sense of security. Um, and that seems like that is prevalent. Um, especially maybe um, in our culture right here. Tell us the dangers um, of that and, and why you see that being so prevalent in our day. Uh, yeah, I think it's probably uh, a, a under, undervaluing genuine conversion, like a, a, fault, a wrong teaching on conversion or just simply thinking that conversion is simply walking an aisle, praying a prayer, like in your inn. And that's so common. Uh, even I think in Southern Baptist churches for sure in the South, and that produces, uh, I think that produces false converts in the church, and it gives people false assurance. So I think you, 
we need to teach properly on conversion. That conversion is, is a radical change, being born again. Uh, so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a bad teaching on conversion that leads to false assurance, which I certainly had. Now, I had probably good teaching on it, uh, but uh, I think I was pushed one time, which I know, Mark, you were pushed by Jerry's brother one time, uh, and I was very uncomfortable when this guy pushed me on, like, that was it of my conversion. When I shared my conversion, was simply praying a prayer, and he was like, well, you know, is that it, Scott? Is there anything else? And I got very uncomfortable and just wanted to finish the conversation. So I think deep down, and then my mom, when she was doing that evangelism explosion and she was training for that, and she, would, she asked me the questions one day, and she's like, if you were to die and stand before God, well, I just wanted to stop it all together. I just said, Mom, like, I don't want to do this. I think because deep down I knew uh, something wasn't right, but I just didn't, didn't want to, to talk about it. So I think we've got to have a proper teaching on conversion, that there, it's, a, it's a radical change. Yeah, Mark, you talked about it last week a little bit, because you had the same deal going. Yeah, where you I, felt like you can make a deal with the Lord somehow and, and, and be fine. Yeah, I mean, th- this sounds silly. I did have the conscious thought when I was young. I, I don't know how old I was. This had to be preteen, I think. But uh, what I, I remember walking on my parents' driveway, vivid moment where I just remember thinking, you know, because I, I had an insecurity, like you're saying, about my relationship with God. But at the end of the day, this is what I had this conscious thought walking on my driveway, like, I don't know, 10, 9 years old. I remember thinking... <clears throat> I don't know for sure where I'm at with the Lord, but I know at the, at the end of the day, when I'm, when I'm going to meet him, everything's going to be fine. I, I didn't, no, there was no biblical ground for that. That was false. That was incorrect. But I, I, did, I think it's because I did not have a sense of the weight of my own personal sin. Yeah. So I didn't actually, it's like the Bible says there's a threat of going to hell, but it's like, a good guy like me? I'm, I'm not going there. Like, I, I think deep down, I just thought I'm not really... It's, it's one thing to say I deserve judgment. It's another thing to feel in your bones that you deserve the judgment of God. And you know how different those two things are? One is just sort of, yeah, I say the, I say the saying, I, I deserve hell, I, I need Jesus. Another, it's another thing to feel it down in your bones. Like, I am on my way to destruction by my own choosing, and God must rescue me from myself. That's a different level. And both of us were at this superficial level where we would say the right thing, but there was no evident life change for, for years. Mm-hmm. You know, I've sat beside you guys forever, and it just hit me. You guys are PKs. Uh, is it different for PKs than, than others? We are, we are, our, yeah, our dad is a pastor, so yeah, we're, we're PKs, which is a wonderful gift. I, I, uh, I don't know what effect that had on me in terms of my obedience or disobedience. Certainly, it allowed me to hear the gospel, and I saw a consistent Christian life in my parents. There's no question about that. But there may have been a little bit of acting out as a contrarian sort of against some of that in me. Maybe that's some of my rebellious years and my early teenage years. I'm not sure. How about you, Scott? Scott did better hiding his rebellion, let's be honest here. (laughs) I I got caught. He didn't get caught. That was the difference between the two of us. That's right. Yeah, I I don't think it had... I don't think I had that negative part of trying to to rebel against that. I just think I, I just rebelled against... Christianity period. Uh, I don't think it was from my parents. I think everything about my parents, it was totally positive. Like Jonathan Edwards says, some people grow up in a more advantageous position to hear the gospel. I remember reading that than others. And I just thought, oh my goodness, like that's exactly what I've had. I've had the gospel since I was a little child. And I just feel like it's, it's, it's a huge benefit, even though I still was a false convert. But let me just say here, what question is, are, are you in the place where Scott and I were, which is you get uncomfortable talking about whether you're genuinely a believer and like how you can have true assurance and whether the gospel, you know, when you face the Lord, how is that going to go? If that's a conversation killer for you, you you just want to do anything to change the subject, that's not a good sign. That is not a good sign. Um, The woman at the well, remember? Jesus, it's one of my favorite passages, but when Jesus is talking to that woman with that broken past, he says, go call your husband and come here. Does Jesus know her past? He does. That's why he brings it up, to try to put his finger on wh- where her need for salvation is. He puts his finger right there, and she goes, well, I, I don't have a husband. 
And Jesus says, good job lying by telling the truth. Uh, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you've actually had five husbands, and the man you now have you're living with, but he's not your husband. What you have said is true. And there's a little twinkle in Jesus' eye when he says that, because, oh yeah, technically what you said is true, but you're all, everything you're saying is a misrepresentation. And she says, I need to repent of my sin. No. As soon as the, her five failed marriages and her, she's living with a guy she's not married with, as soon as that comes to the fore from Jesus, she goes, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on Mount Gerizim, and your fathers worship in Mount Zion. Which is the true place of worship? And Jesus goes, oh, you want to get into an obscure… Oh, it's not obscure, but it's a theological debate that's what? Changing the subject. It's not an… It's an important debate. But the point was, she does not want to talk about her adultery. (laughs) She wants to talk about an obscure theological discussion. I keep using it. It's not obscure. But she wants to change the subject. And, And Jesus goes, okay, you want to talk about worship? How about this? It's not about your geographical location. God's looking for a certain kind of person who worships in spirit and in truth. That, that's who the, the, the God is spirit, and He's looking for that. And before she knows it, she's, she's converted. She's going back to the town to tell. But a, a sign that something was not good was her desire to change the subject when her sin and her past came up. And, and if, if, if there's a part of us that says, I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk for more than about 30 seconds about eternal things and where I am with the Lord. I don't, I don't think that's a sign of health. I think that could be a sign of, of, of some of not as positive things. Yeah. And a very serious passage, we looked at last week some very encouraging ones. Romans 8. And we should start every Sunday school and every everything with Romans 8. Romans 8, 28 through 39. Really all of Romans 8, a great commentary on there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Assurance everywhere in those 39 verses. But if we're flipping the coin and looking at the other side, very important side, 1 John 3, I think might be as good as we could... Uh, get on this. First John 3, maybe starting in verse 4. Mark, would you read 4 to maybe 10 there? Because yeah. there are 6 and 9 in here are about as serious verses, it seems, on one who would say, my life is not matching up. I realize that, but I still feel fine about my salvation. There is no room for that in uh, in gospel obedience or true Christianity. Would you read that for us, yes. Mark? Can I start even earlier? Oh, yeah. Let, let, me, let me start in 228 just to get the whole flow of this because it's so wonderful and also there's, there's a warning. First uh, John 228, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor is the one who does not love his brother. Can you help explain like six and nine there? Because all of us, we would read that and just say, we have sinned so much. How is it that we're truly believers if we continue to sin? What's the, how do you explain that? How do you, what's yeah, the right understanding? Just real quick, John, when John writes, you probably know this, John tends to split the world into very strong contrasts. So it's not, we're all struggling here. It's no, there are sons of light and there are sons of darkness. There are children of God, children of the devil. There are those who know the Lord, those who don't. Those who practice righteousness, those who practice wickedness. He splits the whole world into two black and white categories. Just very clear division here. And so we should expect that in these verses. And look at verse six. No one who abides in him, that's a believer, keeps on sinning. So no one who's a genuine believer keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, let's use another verse to interpret it, verse 9. Let's put it side by side, like Jerry said. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The idea of practicing sin or continuing in sin, th this is the idea, because if you pause here, there's an easy objection to say, everybody in this room sins. So nobody must be a believer, because this says, if you keep on sinning, you don't know the Lord. Well, obviously, that's not what John means. He knows that we all sin. In fact, if you flip back at chapter 2, look at verse 1. Just, just so you know, in his own letter, he knows that that is true, that we are going to sin as Christians. 2-1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not, what? Sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So does he know that we are at times going to sin as believers? Yes, he's not denying that. There's a difference between lapsing into sin at times and getting back up versus unrepentant, willful sin, living in sin without repentance. And that's what he's describing here. Uh, I think, Fred, you may have mentioned last week, it's what you, know, it's, you you're, it's what you practice. Yeah, explain that. Uh, yes, a um, medical doctor. If, if you've known any med medical doctors, that's, they practice medicine. And for them... Awfully, is often it's a consuming lifestyle. It's what they do. Uh, if sin is what we do, we're not a believer. Simply put. Now, that doesn't mean we won't sin, but if we make a practice of sinning, and, and you can uh, pick any particular sin that you want, then we're not believers because that's our profession, practicing sin, just as a doctor or a pastor. If he makes a profession of being a pastor or a minister and, and sins, then he's unfortunately not a believer. If that's his identity, I guess. That's what I'm looking for. Right. Scott, can you help us there on to say, we're not saying that you must do good works in order to be a believer. Can you help us to kind of differentiate yeah. those two? Sure. Uh, well, it goes back to, I think, I think it's Martin Luther who said this. I looked this up this morning. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone, that idea. Yeah. And uh, I think it's uh, John Gerstner. I looked him up again this morning and watched this, this clip of him. He's got the chalk, chalkboard, and he's got the chalk and the chalk holder thing, like, and just going crazy on the chalkboard. But I love this one where he talks about faith, and he talks about the Roman Catholic Church, and just, it's so good. But he, but he talks about, he uses uh, the Luke 18 story, uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee went up to the temple to pray. And he talks about uh, the, the tax collector. He said he can't even look his eyes up to heaven, but he beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it says that that text says that Jesus said that man went to his house justified. But Gershner said if that man was 20 years old and when that story took place, and for the next 60 years, 
He lived an exemplary Christian life, like a model of, of what a Christian is to be, uh, filled with good works. He said if he returned to that temple 60 years later at 80 years old, he would beat his breast. He wouldn't be able to look into, into heaven and he would say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling, but it will produce a changed life in our life. It's not meritorious works. That's what Gershner kept pointing out. It's not meritorious. No, but it is, it's evidence that we have been born again. And so the second story I would tell is uh, the story, Mark, you've told. And I looked it up again to try to get the exact details of it. But Dawson Trotman, uh, who's founded the Navigator Ministries, uh, he, he had a powerful conversion in his own right. And uh, he was big on discipleship, big on scripture memory. I think he was with the NAS for 23 years and he was only 50 years old. He had five children. He was speaking at a retreat in New York, 1956. I believe he and a friend had been skiing on this lake and uh, they, they were, he was already worn out by this, but they came back in and there were some girl campers there. I don't, they were probably very young and he asked them if they wanted to go on a ride in the boat. And so they did, they jumped in and they took off and Dawson had them and he asked them if they could swim. One of the girls said she could, one of the girls said she could not. So Dawson had them around the arms, locked arms with him and said, I'm gonna hold on to you tightly. I don't think they had uh, life jackets. So they began to go around the lake. But all of a sudden, somewhere in the lake, middle of the lake, maybe they, they took a sharp right turn, hit a wave and Dawson and the girl who didn't know how to swim fell into the water and uh, the, the boat takes off. Like, it's going to take a while for the boat to even realize that they have fallen out. I think some, what happened is somebody else realized that they had fallen out, and this guy jumps in to kind of swim after them. And so Dawson is there. He's already exhausted, but he's treading water with this girl who cannot swim, and he's holding her up, holding her up, holding her up. This guy is, is swimming as fast as he can towards them, and as soon as he gets there, Dawson is going underwater, and he holds up this little girl, and he gives it to this man, and he dies. He drowns saving this little girl. And uh, I think somebody said at his funeral that he, he died as he lived, uh, lifting people up, holding people up. Powerful quote there. But like you've talked about it, Mark. That girl, if she was, say, eight, uh, would this girl who was eight years old, would she not honor Dawson Trotman's life? I mean, if she was a believer, she would thank God every year for Dawson Trotman. Now, if you found somebody who said, yeah, I was the girl there, but she, she despised Dawson Trotman, said all these negative things, you would say, that is not the same girl that, that was there. But I would say, how much more should our lives be changed if we come in contact with God? If we've been born again, the blood of Jesus has covered us. Of course, we want to honor him. We're not going to do it perfectly, but our life is going to be totally different if we've experienced uh, forgiveness in Christ. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. And that's the, the whole difference there is uh, that it's the fruit and not the root that are good works. It's, it, it's showing. Mark. On that point, uh, the way that she's going to speak about and honor that man uh, for what he did is not what saves her. It's the proof that he saved her. Yeah. You see how different that is? Of course, if someone dies saving you, it's going to change your life. If it doesn't, you don't know what happened to you. You, you haven't really, the, the penny has not dropped. You don't really know what's happened. But if you really, if it sinks in, this man, uh, out of a genuine love and care for me, died saving me, it is going to change you. But the change is not why he saved you. The change didn't happen until after he saved you. The, the change is evidence. It's, it's result of his salvation. And similarly, when we become right with God, it is going to dramatically change our life. The change is not what saves us, but it is the necessary fruit, the nef necessary evidence the necessary result of having been born again and truly put your faith in, in the Lord. What happens when we know people that, and I imagine all of us might, that really look like they have walked away, that we really, really look like they were believers at one time, and they have, they have, they have kind of walked away, they're, they're certainly drifted a long way away. What is our response to that? How, what, what should we tell somebody? If that's our own, in, in our own life, or if that's someone else. 
Let me just start with one thing. It depends if you're a member of the same church, big time there, because you have a responsibility for Christians in general, but if they're a member of the church that you're a member of, then you have a special responsibility. If a, you know, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if, a, if, a, if there's a hundred sheep and one sheep wanders away, then you've got to leave the 99 and go find that sheep. And then the very next paragraph is about church discipline, which is not about being better than another person. It's about lovingly pursuing someone and going after someone who's, who's, who's trapped in sin, trying to win them back. And, you know, first you go one-on-one and you confront them and then take one or two with you so that it, every testimony be established on two or three witnesses. And then if they don't listen to the two or three, then you take it to the church. And if they don't listen to the whole church, then you, then you must remove them from membership and treat them as a Gentile tax collector, as an unbeliever. That is not an act of, of, of hostility. That's not an act of self-righteousness. It is an act of deep, severe mercy. It, it is an act of tremendous compassion that, that has sadly been largely lost in the, in the Southern Baptist uh, denomination in the last century. Before, you know, if you go back 130 years, uh, just take Georgia, the state of Georgia. I read a book about this in seminary. It was all about Georgia. It was super interesting for that reason. And it was about Southern Baptist churches in Georgia in the early to mid-1800s. This is a staggering statistic compared to today. Uh, they said that on average, uh, I think it was between 1% and 3% of members of every church were excommunicated annually in the state of Georgia. Wow. So on average, more than 1% of it, so, so if you have 300 members, three to nine people got excommunicated annually for unrepentant sin in, in a, a typical Southern Baptist church. Uh, and uh, one of the stories took place at the Oconee River. I was like, wow, that's like in my neighborhood. It's kind of crazy. So I'm, I'm reading this thing, and they said that a church in the mid-1800s that was an SBC church would have barely been thought a true church if they did not practice church discipline. And then for, for, for reasons that are hard to totally understand, uh, post-Civil War, early into the 1900s, church discipline sort of fell to the side. And for the last century, it's hard to find an SBC church that practices church discipline, honestly. But, but I, th I think that's biblically, if someone is a member of your church and straying, they're not coming anymore, they're, they're straying, in a loving, humble, tearful, gracious way, we have to go after the one sheep that has wandered away from the flock. That is our Christian responsibility. It's how we love the flock. Yeah. And, and the whole purpose of that is restoration. Yes. That's why we go after them, because they've wandered on. Yep. Um, you know, First John also says, you know, if they, if they go away and leave, they're not part of us. Yeah, Papa, would you read that in 219? That's, I think we touched on that a minute last week, but uh, that's too good not to see this. This is a astounding verse. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Or if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. That's pretty striking. Uh, and I think that's, that's what we would say. Not that you lose your salvation. They just never were regenerated in the first place. I think if you're regenerated, I think Scripture makes it very difficult to lose your salvation. Mm -hmm. um, I want to, one other thing, I want to go to John uh, chapter 15, but before I do, go back to 1 John, uh, the verses you read, Mark, uh, verse 3, 8, uh, or I'm sorry, 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Uh, uh, no one who keeps on sinning either has seen him or known him. Abides in him, that's a biggie, abiding. Um, I, I talked about this, about this to Mark briefly this morning. Um, I, this apparently, according to commentators, took place uh, on the night of betrayal. Um, 
on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, they had left the upper room. Jesus was continuing to teach as he walked. They passed the temple. There's a motif apparently on the temple of a vine because Israel was the vine, God's vine. And, and so that was on the exterior uh, of the temple. Um, and this is not the first time Jesus looked at something agricultural and, and gave a, a lesson. But 15.1, I am the true vine. That's, that's Jesus. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, that, they, that they, it may bear more fruit. I just had a revelation this morning. There's two events there. There's the branch that does not bear fruit, which he takes away. I mean, he cuts off, means to cut off. Uh, but every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Uh, Piper had a little brief teaching, asked Pastor John this morning on this uh, verse or verses. And it, it's amazing. He said the, the father's involved because he's the, he's the beater culturalist, if you know anything about winemaking. That's the wine dresser. He's the, he's, the, he's the one that prunes. It says right here, uh, my father is the vine dresser. So there's an external effort, and that's, that's, that's the pruning that takes place. Every branch in, in me that does bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you, abide in me. Same words as 1 John. Of course, John wrote this, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John is saying here, and Piper, you know, affirmed this, that the father's working in conjunction with the son. There's an external pruning going on by the father to, to take away dross from from the, uh, from the vine because dross takes away sap that goes to feed the grapes. That's how you get the best grapes. And if there's an errant uh, branch or something that's cut off, y'all know more about ag agriculture probably than I do. Um, but the sun also is, we're abiding in the sun. It's, it's the sap from the spirit or the sun inside of us internally that's changing us also. So we have an external change. This pruning is probably, um, could be chastening, could be discipline. Yeah. To make us more like him. Mm -hmm. well, just on that point, Fred. Yes, sir. Think about this. In terms of believers that you've known, someone who has an incredibly easy life all the time, first of all, is that the kind of person you want to be around when you're going through some suffering? The person who's never really gone through anything? It's, it's hard to find comfort there. But the other thing is, Christians, any Christian who's been a believer for any period of time will tell you, when do we grow the most? I mean, I don't wish these circumstances on myself or on you in one sense, but in another sense, the Lord wishes them on us for our good, which is trials. I mean, think about it. Virtually every Christian who's been around for a while will say, I grew the most and my roots went the deepest when the times were absolutely the most confusing, the most perplexing, the most challenging, the most painful. I hit a dead end or I went through some physical pain or emotional pain, and it was through that that the Lord taught me this, this, and this. And so the Lord, even though it is challenging to endure these kinds of trials, obviously, 
the Lord is working for our good in them, and He is advancing our character through the, 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 the vine dressing, through the, the pruning that happens. Scott? Right. G.K. Chesterton said he never learned anything through the good days of life. I mean, that's pretty profound. Yeah, you don't need to turn there. You're right, Papa. That's, go ahead. Yeah. Well, but anyway, back, briefly back to this. So, so you got the Father and the Son both working in conjunction to keep, keep us abiding, uh, to keep us in Him, to, to make sure that we're His sheep. They're pruning. They're, he's feeding us. And it says on down in, in the passage, he, uh, there's the Word, uh, His love, so that you can bear fruit. Uh, and joy. Those are, the, those are the elements that we get from the abiding is, is love and the word of God and joy. And uh, so that's how we know that we're abiding in God, that, that, that we're bearing fruit. Mm-hmm. That's what it says here. If you're not bearing fruit, then you're probably not a Christ follower. Yes. And God does. Uh, and you don't need to turn there, but we've, we've spent some time in here before. Be, um, that God will always discipline us. Besides this, this is uh, Hebrews 12, 9. We respect um, we our earthly fathers that discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we much, much more be subjected, subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, Mark, just like you said. But later, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we have got to love that God is faithful to discipline his children. Papa, you have memorized Romans 8 and 16. Isn't it a beautiful (laughs) thing that the Spirit will always testify with our spirit? Bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Yes. And if children, then heirs, heirs of, of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified. With yeah, him. that 16 to 18 is a guarantee oh, of both. Yes, yeah, another guarantee. Yeah, the suffering will go with it. Yep, Scott? Yeah, well, I was just thinking about the, the original question about how do you respond when somebody makes a profession of faith and then leaves. I just think this, this story from Piper with one of his sons is representative of how we should feel in terms of a pastoral heart for people like that. My first response was we should pray and plead that they would come back. But Piper had, had one of his sons who made a profession of faith, but then seemed to be, I think he did, at least when he was young, but then he was living like he certainly wasn't a Christian. But Piper says for, I think it was, I don't know how many weeks, 14 weeks in a row, he took his son out to, to Pizza Hut. And he, he had a meal with him, and he just said, can I tell you the gospel again? And week after week after week, Piper was faithful just to give the gospel again. And his son would say, Daddy, it doesn't make sense. Like, the gospel doesn't make any sense, but Piper just kept going after him. I just think that's the, that's the response. You grieve that they have left, but you don't stop pursuing. No, you play it, pray and plead that they would return, and you go and you, you give them the gospel again and again. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I think that kind of pastoral heart should be there uh, when, when that happens. Yeah, yep. Luther was pretty emphatic on preaching the gospel, uh, preaching the gospel to yourself, for starters, and as well as to others. And he said, if necessary, beat it into your head. Because we've got to remember, it, it's the gospel that saves, the gospel that transforms. And that's um, pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, it is. Could Mark, you've helped us with this before, but if we could turn to, to Hebrews 6, because we were there not, not too long ago in our Hebrews study, but... Someone may argue mm-hmm. that they could lose their salvation from Hebrews 6. Would that be the, the passage most people uh, yeah, would go that's, to, maybe? That's a good one. Could you help us 
uh, in case we kind of run into um, someone who feels like, like th that we really could lose that salvation mm -hmm. if we truly have it. Yeah, so t turn to Hebrews 6 is probably the, one of the more controversial passages on this topic, and some people would argue that it, that it teaches that you can lose your salvation. Uh, we, we don't believe that, but I want to try to give you an explanation briefly, a brief version of this for why, what we think it means. Uh, look with me here. So he's talking about how the, the, the church he's speaking to needs to go on to maturity. Uh, at the end of chapter 5, he says, you know, you still need milk. You, you should need solid food, but you're, you're not quite there yet. But then chapter 6, verse 1 of Hebrews, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions, uh, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead, and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. Pause there. That's confusing. I don't think he's saying we move on from the gospel here. Like, we move on from Christ. What he means is everything that is said in the first two verses, an Old Testament saint would believe. There's a coming Christ. We must turn from, we must repent and believe in God. The resurrection of the dead is going to happen at the last day. There's eternal judgment, and there's, there's teachings about washings, uh, some translations, baptisms, but probably ceremonial washings. Paul says, uh, the, the author, I don't think it was Paul, but may, we don't know who it was, the author of, of Hebrews, I'm going to mention that in the sermon, actually, uh, the author of Hebrews says, uh, let's move on from that. That's just an Old Testament understanding. Let's move into, the, into, the, into this new understanding in Christ, the fulfillment in Christ. He says, we'll do that if God permits. So there's a strong sovereignty of God in verse 3. Verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. That sounds like a believer. Mm -hmm. Verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful for those to whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So, four to six is the real controversial part. Just to summarize it, it's impossible to restore this person to repentance who has been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then has fallen away from the faith. Someone could argue that's a Christian who becomes a non-Christian. That's someone who is genuinely converted. They, they shared in the Spirit, and then they abandoned God, and they, they, they spurned it, and they turned away. I, I do not think this is describing a genuine conversion. I think this is describing something other than that. And my, I, I don't have time to explain all this, but just a quick case for that. Judas Iscariot is a textbook example of this passage. In Matthew 10, Jesus sent out all 12 disciples, and he names all, all of them are named, including Judas Iscariot. And it's, Jesus says, I am giving you authority over unclean spirits. I'm giving you authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. And all 12 went out and did those works in the power of the Spirit. Judas, by the power of the Holy Spirit, healed people. That's what Matthew 10, 1 through 7 says. So Judas did miraculous deeds by the power of the Spirit, commissioned by Jesus. Was he tasting the goodness of the age to come? Was he sharing in the powers of the age to come? Was he sharing in the Holy Spirit? Yes. Was he born again? No. He was stealing from the money bag the whole time of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus says that he, uh, you know, uh, Jesus makes very clear Judas was not a believer, but he had outward forms of that. And I, I think here we're describing someone who comes very close to what looks like salvation, but then turns their back on it. And the author of Hebrews says, 
uh, for some, it, it actually becomes impossible for them to be restored to repentance. And I, Matthew 7 would be the, the case when Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, not I used to know you and you lost your salvation. Depart from me for I never knew you. They didn't lose their salvation when they were doing miraculous works by the Spirit, which is what Judas did. You, you never knew me. And then he says, uh, depart me, workers of lawlessness. At, the, at their heart of hearts, they never had a heart that loved God's law. Uh, they, they were false converts uh, the whole time, which is a tragic thing when you see this in real life. Yep. Number five says, let us um, be earnest then to make our calling and election sure. Why, if God has us, do we need to be earnest to make our calling and election sure? Someone might ask that question, Papa. Simply because I think there's, there's in our faith or lack of faith sometimes always a doubt, am I good enough? We live in a performance-based world. We were born, I was born in a performance-based fashion. You know, do this and you'll be rewarded. So we think there's always something that we can do uh, to contribute to our salvation. In fact, Luther even addressed this as well. He said, anytime we disregard the active salvation of Christ, then we, um, then we want to make up for it by doing, doing some good works. I mean, he was a master at that because he had been a monk. He understood that process. So, um, so he... He warned us about that. He said, whenever you're feeling down about anything, preach the gospel to yourself. Don't go try to do something good because uh, that, that's not the fix. The gospel is the fix, the reminder of who we are in Christ. Good, Scott. Yeah, well, just one other quick thing on the Hebrews passage, just to say uh, how God will use the warning passages in the Bible. They're, they're, it's a gracious gift that God's given these warning passages because yeah. he will use those warning passages to keep us persevering. Like you, you could be in sin or something, and you go to a passage where Jesus says, if your, your right hand causes you to get sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life maimed than have both hands go to hell. Like Passages like that, how many times have that over the course of church history have made snap Christians back? into repentance because they, they read these warning passages. I think of, uh, uh, Piper tells multiple stories in his talk on this about there was a woman who was committing adultery. I think she was a missionary kid. And uh, they, they, it was found out, it was discovered. Her husband was furious. They came to his office. I think he, he had the woman and he told her, he set her down. He said, if you keep doing this, every, he said, you need to cut this off now. Like, you're not going this Saturday. She said, I don't know. Said, you need to do it now because if you persist in this, you're going to go to hell, is what he told her. And she just was totally shocked that anybody would speak like this to her. She couldn't believe it. But over time, the marriage ended up being healed. But Piper said, for 28 years in a row, every Christmas, she sends a thank you card to Piper mm -hmm. for telling him. It was a gracious warning for Piper. Yes, was it blunt and in her, in her face? Yes, but that was the thing that God used to bring her back. Uh, so these are gracious warnings in the Bible. But in terms of making our calling and election sure, I think, Mark, you've talked about this. We're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about eternity. You want to be sure if you're a Christian or not. You don't want to just say, oh yeah, I, I, I think I'm fine. No, you don't, you don't want to play that game with it. I mean, you want to be certain. This is of utmost importance that we make our calling and elections. Right? I, just lay, I mean, that seems to be the obvious thing, but I mean, so many people, there's so much false assurance that people just have this false assurance. It's such a dangerous thing. I just think it's so weighty. We, we've got to be sure on this. We've got to be. Just to give, this is kind of a dramatic uh, example, uh, but 
I can remember, you have these little random pinpoint memories that are crystal clear and everything around them you forget. You know, they just have these little moments you remember. And I just remember this tiny little moment. This is a little bit dramatic negative-wise, but there was a, I, was, I was at my dad's church years ago, uh, a while ago, and my dad was preaching through Hebrews. He was in Hebrews 10 on another warning passage, just like 6. Uh, it's, a, it's a very intense passage. I, I remember just being deeply moved, and, and everything in me was saying, I don't want to fall away from the Lord. Like, this, is so, this is so heavy and weighty. And the service ends. This is what I remember. The service just, end, just ended. My dad just preached. I had, I'm like teared up in my eyes. I stand up. I'm near the back of the service, and there's a guy I went to school with who's sitting in front of me. And I, spiritually, I don't think is, was in a great place. He stands up. We make eye contact at the very end of the service. And I said to him, man, that makes me never want to turn away from the Lord. And, and he just said something like he agreed. But this is the dramatic part. He has since died. He was younger than me. And I went to his funeral uh, about a year and a half ago. This is not a joke here. Like, like we, we heard this incredibly intense warning. And then here a few years later, I'm at his funeral. And he was, what, in his 20s. I'm at his funeral just a few years later. And here we are. And like, whether we took that warning seriously that day at Faith Presbyterian Church really matters because it's not that long before we're facing the Lord face to face. And so to be at his funeral later, and, 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 and I don't know where he was spiritually at the end of his life, but, but it, it just hit me with tremendous power because I remembered that moment we had back years earlier at the end of that service. Yeah, well, that's... I think when we were going through Hebrews, um, you know, I had some long discussions with Tyler about Hebrews. And he said that, you know, he, the, the, the teaching that he'd gotten from school, that a lot of these passages are obviously for believers because a non-believer is not going to pay any attention much to him anyway, maybe not even read them at all. Mm -hmm. But a believer um, who is regenerated and born of the Spirit has got to be grasped by the gravity of something like uh, this these verses that we just read. The Hebrews 6. Were you a believer, Mark, when you heard that sermon? Yes. Okay, at that point you were. Yeah. Two final passages. Turn to 1 Timothy. And uh, in, in 2 Timothy, right after that, let us be earnest to make our calling and election sure. Look at 6, uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Love these passages. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of eternal life. Fight the good fight of faith. And this right before Paul goes to heaven, 2 Timothy 4, a few more pages. 7 and 8, maybe starting in 6, 6, 7, and 8. Great words from the apostle Paul, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure has come. So he knows it. He knows he's about ready uh, to go to heaven. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also who have loved his Appearing. Are we looking forward to the appearing of our, of our Savior? Do we know the Lord so that we long for that day when we get to go to heaven? Or is there a scary um, side to that where we're still um, concerned and, and worried about that? Any final thoughts? Papa, would you pray that uh, we would make our calling and election sure and uh, put to... And also know the assurance um, from your passage there in 
uh, Hebrew and Romans eight sixteen. Father, I'm so thankful for the gospel. It's the power of salvation for those, all those who believe. Um, for in it is the righteousness of God, faith for faith. Um, my prayer would be for all of us in this room today, in the hearing of my voice, that we would strive to make our election sure. That's not works. That's confirming, affirming uh, the fact that the Spirit has witnessed to our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. There's nothing more important than that. No football score, no job, no profession, no marriage, no wife, no family, no children. Nothing in this universe is as important as our relationship to you, Lord Jesus. And so I, I, I pray that the gravity, the heaviness of this would uh, weigh on us if, if, if we're not abiding in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that you would affirm us, that you would make this affirmation secure in our hearts through your Spirit, as you tell us in Romans, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. I don't think there's anything else that, that would be needed in this life more than that assurance. In Jesus' name, amen.